Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Joe McCormick. My normal co-host, Robert Lamb, is not with us today. He's off on vacation at the other side of the haunted sea. So instead, I'm bringing you an interview today that I did with an expert on maps and sea monsters. Sea monsters seemed appropriate for this time of year. Uh, This expert is named Chet Van Duzer, and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. So to introduce him here, Chet Van Duzer is a researcher in residence at the John Carter Brown Library and a board member of the Lazarus Project at the University of Rochester, which brings multispectral imaging to cultural institutions around the world. He's published extensively on medieval and Renaissance maps. In addition to his book, Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps, which was published by a British Library in 2013, his book, The World for a King, Pierre Descaliers' Map of 1550, was published in 2015 by the British Library, and in 2016, Brill published a book he co-authored with Ilya Dines, Apocalyptic Cartography, Thematic Maps and the End of the World in a 15th Century Manuscript. In 2018, Springer published his book, Henricus Martellus's World Map at Yale, uh, 1491, Multispectral Imaging, Sources, and Influence. His current project is a book about cartographic cartouches. And without any further ado, let's get right into the interview about sea monsters. Chad Van Duzer, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here to talk about sea monsters and maps of the medieval and renaissance period. Uh, would you start just by introducing yourself, maybe talk a little bit about your background and what got you interested in maps? Yes. Well, Joe, first, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and as, as far as my background with maps, uh, I'd studied mathematics and English literature and ancient Greek and Latin at Berkeley. And it took me a while to find maps, as it were. Uh, And it was at a very specific moment. I was at the Vatican Museums just as a tourist, and they had a a manuscript of Ptolemy's geography on display. And the manuscript was from the middle of the 15th century, but it had had a map added to it, uh, another map painted on blank pages in about 1530. And that map had a very, very interesting totally hypothetical southern continent uh, and which even though it was labeled terra incognita was full of place names and it also had a very unusual shape and so i wanted to learn more about that where this strange shape might have come from where all these place names might have come from and so that was when i got interested in maps and uh it was in another institution in europe where i got interested in sea monsters and in fact, it was another manuscript of Ptolemy's geography. Um, I was at the, the National Library of Spain and uh, they have I knew they had a manuscript of Ptolemy's geography and I wanted to see it. And when I opened the manuscript, I saw that all of the, the maps had sea monsters on them. Lots and lots of sea monsters. In fact, more than any other manuscript I've since encountered. And uh, I, I thought... And these these monsters were not mentioned in the literature about this manuscript. So I thought I should write an article about the monsters in this manuscript. And the article kept growing and growing and growing. And then finally, a colleague, Catherine Delano Smith, pointed out that it would make more sense as a book. And she was (laughs) absolutely right. (laughs) 
well, I just wanted to say I, I've really loved this book. Uh, it's full of fascinating stuff. Before we get directly into the sea monsters, I wondered if you might want to talk a little bit more generally about historical cartography. Um, what is it that you can learn about uh, a group of people from the past, from another time and place, by looking at the maps they made that you might not learn by looking at other things? Yes. Well, uh, all, all too often, historical maps are just used as illustrations uh, for books, for historical books, for example, but others as well. Whereas, in fact, um, maps, historical maps often contain historical evidence uh, that is not preserved in other sources. And that can be for any number of reasons. Uh, but just to mention one example, uh, the earliest surviving European illustration of an opossum occurs on Martin Waldseemler's Carta Marina of 1516. And there certainly were, uh, no doubt, earlier European depictions of the opossum, which was regarded as a marvel because it was the first uh, marsupial that Europeans had encountered. There certainly were earlier depictions, but as it happened, they don't survive. And thus, as it happens, the earliest surviving depiction is on a map. And this happens much more frequently than one might suspect. And uh, a large and detailed map can have a little bit of an encyclopedic, encyclopedic character to it and thus preserves information of both textual and graphical uh, from various sources. And, and sometimes considering the historical evidence offered by maps is, is really essential uh, in constructing a historical argument. Does looking at ancient maps also give you a better idea of uh, the kind of uh, the texture of the worldview of ancient people, like what they felt about the, the broader world, especially places far away from them? It, it does. Um, uh, it, it can be difficult to try to go from a map to what the cartographer was thinking. Uh, but in some cases, making that, that, trans, that, uh, that jump is possible. Um, and in fact, monsters... Uh, play into precisely that aspect of maps in the sense that it was generally thought that the, the most distant parts of the world were the parts filled with monsters. And, and the fact that that's often uh, the case on maps uh, is very clear graphic evidence of that, that thought about the, the sort of structure of the world. Uh, I think maybe we should get into our discussion of sea monsters just by having you describe a couple of your favorite examples. So when you think about your favorite medieval or renaissance maps with sea monsters on them, what do they show and what do we know about the circumstances under which these maps were made? Uh, yes, well, one of them, uh, one of my favorite maps, or in this case, an atlas uh, involving sea monsters, is precisely that manuscript of Ptolemy's geography in the National Library of Spain. And as is often the case, we, we know we, we don't have textual evidence uh, about the creation of that manuscript. We don't have a document that uh, that goes through what the person who commissioned the manuscript wanted from it. Um, but if one looks at a variety of manuscripts of Ptolemy's geography and one can do the same thing with nautical charts, 
one begins to get the impression that in commissioning the creation of a work like this, uh, that that wealthy person uh, had many different options. And many of those options related to the decoration of the maps. And we we do have one contract for the creation of uh, medieval maps, and it does talk specifically about the decoration and and even the exact number of trees that were to be painted on the map. (laughs) And I I think we have to imagine uh, something similar happening with sea monsters, that this was an optional decorative element. Uh, One could have a a very plain uh, manuscript of Ptolemy's geography or nautical chart, or one could have a more elaborately decorated one. And the sea monsters were one of those optional elements. So when we see sea monsters on a nautical chart or a manuscript of Ptolemy's geography, uh, we know that the person commissioning the map uh, was someone who wanted more. They wanted more more of the options available, more decoration, a more elaborate manuscript. So that's certainly part of what's happening with that uh, specific manuscript of Ptolemy's geography. But I, I, I have the feeling that there's more. Uh, and again, we don't have textual evidence to support this. So this is speculation. But it seems that whoever, whoever was painting the sea monsters in the seas of that manuscript took a particularly strong interest in the subject because the variety is just so remarkable. Um, it, there's not just sirens. There's multiple different types of sirens. There are sirens with one tail and sirens with two tails and sirens wearing European clothing. Uh, So it really feels like, uh, in this case, it was uh, a specialist uh, in sea monsters, not just a specialist in painting them, but someone who had a very strong interest in the subject. So what do you think creates a passion for sea monsters in in that kind of period? Yes, that's a... uh, (laughs) It's <laughs> a wonderful question. <laughs> I mean, is it the same thing that makes somebody interested in horror movies today, or would it be a different kind of interest? Um, I, I, I think I think it was a different interest. So one of the uh, one of the things that came out in my research for this book was uh, so looking at the sea monsters on medieval and Renaissance maps, they they often look fantastical. They they often look like one thinks surely the cartographer just invented this on the spot. But in fact, I was able to find the sources for a number of the sea monsters on medieval and Renaissance maps, which is to say the cartographers were not simply inventing them on the spot. Uh, They were copied from sources that the cartographer would have had reason to trust like an illustrated encyclopedia um, so I think sea monsters on maps serve multiple functions, and one of them is definitely decoration, but also there was a desire to convey information. And I know that can sound a little ridiculous when, when we look at some of these monsters, and they do seem utterly fantastical, but some of the ones that seem the most fantastic were in fact copied from sources that the cartographer would have thought reliable. So, yes, there's a, a decorative element, but at the same time, there's a, uh, a desire to convey information about what is in the sea. 
Yeah, there are a number of examples I was looking at in your book where it really does seem like uh, that it's a specific practical warning. One uh, that comes to mind is I believe you have an example of a 1367 nautical chart by the Mm -hmm. brothers Pizzagani that shows two ships in the North Atlantic near the supposed mythical Isle of Brazil, I think, uh, and mm-hmm. they're being attacked by a dragon and a giant octopus. And so you could look at that and say, well, that just looks like maybe they were trying to liven up some blank space on the map, but it comes with a warning. It says, uh, you know, while these ships are going to port, dragons and octopuses carry all of the crew members off and, and leave the ships empty and uh, seems to be warning people who are approaching this port, though I think the port is entirely mythical. Is that correct? Yes, uh, th- that is in fact a great example, and it's it's worth emphasizing uh, that 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 image of the the flying dragon and the the giant octopus at- attacking the ships is right near uh, the the edge of the map. It's out in the Atlantic, right near the as as far out in the Atlantic as the cartographer's depiction goes, and I think that's an important element here that. Again, the the area where there's a, a limit of knowledge is, is where monsters tend to be located. So if on that same map, uh, the cartographer does show ships navigating evidently safely in the Atlantic, but closer to the European mainland. There, there are three ships that, that come out of uh, the Strait of Gibraltar and are uh, heading north close to the coasts of uh, Spain and France, but then further out in the Atlantic, uh, again, near the limit of the cartographer's knowledge, we have this, as you say, warning about uh, monsters attacking ships. Is it also an important distinction that this is on a nautical chart as opposed to just a decorative map? Um, that, that's a good question. So very unsurprising thing about nautical charts is that the, the makers were really serving two very different audiences. The cartographer could make uh, an undecorated nautical chart without the the sea monsters, the images of cities, the images of sovereigns, the animals, uh, the mountain ranges. And it was that type of undecorated chart that would be actually used in navigation. So if a, if a chart was decorated with all these images, it would be very expensive. They might have used expensive pigments. That type of chart would never have been taken to sea. And for one thing, the, the ship ship captain couldn't have afforded it. Uh, and then even if he could, he wouldn't want to subject such a valuable map to uh, the salt air. Of course, if you're taking a chart to sea, you probably want to use it to indicate your course. Um, so the, the, the same makers of nautical charts were on the one hand serving a practical market, that is a, a people who actually used the charts to navigate, and those would have been the undecorated charts. And at the same time, they were serving this market of nobles, or rich nobles, who, who wanted the very elaborately decorated charts uh, for collection and display as, as symbols of their worldly knowledge and power. Hmm. So uh, maybe we should talk about the definition of a, what what makes a sea monster. Um, you know, what we know that there are many natural life forms such as whales that have commonly been interpreted as sea monsters throughout history. In fact, one of my favorite parts of your book was you just got a, a spread over a couple of pages that's illustrations of walruses as sea monsters. Uh, they're mm-hmm. just – they look amazing. Um, so how does that uh, – 
sort of uh, that natural life form category blur with mythological terrors like, you know, like the Kraken or Leviathan or the Sirens. Yes. Um, well, d defining just defining the word monster is very problematic. Um, and medieval and, and Renaissance authors who, who tried to define the word disagreed. Um, so some held that a monster was something against nature in some way, uh, whereas others held that uh, that a, a monster was as uh, fearsome as it was, was nonetheless a, a part of God's plan for the world, uh, uh, an integral part of God's plan for the world, as, as strange as it seems. So uh, people who tried to de define monsters differed in, in very fundamental ways, and it remains a, a word that's difficult to define today, I think. And then also there's the fact that uh, as you as you were hinting at, uh, that the, the definition of monster changes over time. So, as you said, whales were throughout uh, the Middle Ages and and much of the Renaissance regarded as monsters. And in in that that spread, the two pages you mentioned uh, with the walruses, um, there's a map from. I believe it's 1595 that uh, explicitly identifies the walrus as a monster. And yet today, uh, you know, for us, a, a whale is the furthest thing from a monster. It's a noble, intelligent creature that's to be preserved. And I also think that uh, we would we would not uh, characterize a walrus as a monster either. <laughs> um, and it's interesting to think about ways that that definition will continue to evolve how things that today we think of as monstrous in the future uh, ideas uh, may may continue to change about those things well one thing that was funny to me about the uh, the idea of a walrus as a monster is that it is a natural life form that has many of the morphological characteristics that are often attributed falsely to monsters. Like it has the tusks, mm. it has the bristly facial hair, you know, that we see on uh, – I think there are a bunch of whales depicted in your book um, that have facial hair of some kind, like a mustache. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I thought that was a funny point of comparison. So you've talked about the idea that uh, that sometimes monsters on maps – could be used as a, a literal warning, like information given to sailors. You know, you might not want to travel here because there's a map. They could uh, more often probably, or m maybe you can say whether it be more often or not, uh, they would just be decorations that would be commissioned by somebody who was looking for a, a, a spicier map, maybe something that has more character to it and shows more worldly knowledge about what lives there. Uh, but what might be other economic demands for, for sea monsters on maps, if any? Yes. Uh, well, as I was saying earlier, it's because sea monsters serve often serve more than one function on maps. They can be both decoration uh, and, and an attempt to indicate what's actually living in the ocean. It can be difficult to divine uh, what the cartographer's uh, wishes were uh, or aims were in in placing sea monsters on maps. How much it might have been motivated, for example. Uh, by the, the the person commissioning the map's wish to have a very heavily decorated map, and how much it was motivated by a wish to 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 convey information about what's in the oceans. But there's one map in particular, and it's uh, 
one of the most spectacular and interesting uh, maps for his collection of of images of sea monsters, which is Olaus Magnus's Cartarina mm. of 1539, which is really just spectacular in terms of its sea monsters. And this so it, was it my shows, favorite, by the way. Yeah, uh, well, by, with good reason. So the, the map shows uh, Scandinavia, and then the waters off uh, Scandinavia, and the, the waters are full of sea monsters. And a colleague of mine uh, has suggested uh, that there was an additional function, uh, intended function of the sea monsters on this map. And that was to scare away fishermen from other nations, uh, leaving uh, the abundant catch from the northern waters to the fishermen of Scandinavia. Mm. And I think that's really a wonderful suggestion about a possible function of sea monsters. Uh, well, one possibility that occurred to me, I mean, it, it, I was wondering if you ever came across something like this. This might touch on uh, uh, an episode you cover in the book about the uh, the flying turtle. But I, I was uh, thinking about the concept in cartography of a trap street, like the idea of a, uh, a fake feature added to a map to sort of mm. enforce copyright. I wonder if a sea monster has ever been used for this purpose. <clears throat> Not to my knowledge, and, and perhaps part of that would be that in the, the, the Middle Ages and Renaissance, the ideas about what one was permitted to copy uh, <laughs> yeah. were very different. Right. Uh, so there was this great freedom and there, there was no, no blame associated with uh, copying uh, many different elements of, of maps and literary works and other things. So um, because of that, it's it's difficult for me to imagine a uh, sea monster being used that way, at least, yeah, at least in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Uh, I guess um, the timeline doesn't line up. That's disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, going back to the example of the walrus, I mean, uh, it's very interesting to watch basically the evolution of the image of the walrus uh, from the early 16th century to, to the end of that century. So Martin Waltzmuller on his Cartamarina, different map with the same name, uh, depicted the walrus much like an elephant, which seems very surprising. It's a creature that looks like an elephant, but it's very clearly labeled uh, walrus. And what must have happened is that someone said, well, the, the walrus has tusks like an elephant. Mm. And the artist, not knowing what better to do, depicted the creature like an elephant. And this error had remarkable life uh, through maps. It was copied again and again. And over time, the image gradually became uh, somewhat more lifelike, but it was a slow process. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the interview. And we're back. Uh, maybe we should talk about a few individual features that, uh, that that I enjoyed from your book that popped up on several maps. Uh, so one is the idea of sirens. Could you speak at length a little bit about sirens, what they represent, and and why they show up on so many maps? Mm. Yes. Well, uh, the the myth of the siren uh, goes back to to Homer's Odyssey, and he. Uh, talks about these uh, female creatures that that live on an island and they sing uh, as sailors pass by in their ships and the their song is so powerful that it, it attracts 
the sailors to the island and then they die there. Um, and over time, the image of sirens evolved, um, as often happens with mythical creatures. And there is an important world map from about 1460 that shows three different kinds of sirens in the Indian Ocean. And there's a, it shows them graphically. And then there's a descriptive text that talks about these three different kinds. And one is uh, half woman, half bird, which is, I think, the, the most common way sirens are depicted. Another is uh, half woman, half fish. And then another is half woman, half horse, which is very unusual. And that, that, that one does not appear on many other maps. But it's a horse with two legs, isn't it? That never... It's a horse with two legs, yes. <laughs> it made less sense to me than your standard centaur. That's right. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the siren had a, a very long life on maps and is certainly one of the most uh, common sea monsters depicted on maps. If a map is only only depicts two sea monsters, the, the chances are pretty good that one of them will be a siren. Uh, one of my favorites from your book, definitely the scariest looking one to me in the whole book, was a humanoid sea monster from Urbano Monti's manuscript, Atlas of 1590, uh, that mm-hmm. was just like the, the top half of a man, but just depicted in a horrifying way with red eyes reaching after a ship with these claw-like hands. Uh, yes. do, do you have any more knowledge about what's going on there? Uh, I, I, I wish I could say yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have suspicions. Um, so the, the location of that monster on, I think they're on Urbano Monte's maps, the, that monster appears twice. And one of them is near the southern tip of Africa, if I recall correctly. And uh, in the, the national epic of Portugal, uh, there's uh, this this giant uh, who lives near the southern tip of Africa and, and sort of his purpose in, in life is to make the passage around the tip of Africa difficult. And uh, I've wondered whether there might be some connection between this, this giant figure em- emerging from the water with these huge claws and, and red eyes might have some connection with that myth. But I haven't been able to find uh, any evidence to substantiate that. Oh, well, that naturally makes me wonder about the connection between the origins of sea monster myths and uh, just natural phenomena like weather, places where there's often bad weather for sea voyages or Mm. treacherous passages uh, because of rocks or whatever else. Yes. Uh, And I I wish it were there were more evidence connecting those things. So I, I think you're absolutely right to to suspect that there is often a connection between a physical danger and the presence of monsters. Um, and uh, one example of that is in the Strait of Messina, which was mythologized as this difficult strait between uh, Sicily and, and, and mainland Italy. And there was it was mythologized as having two monsters there which is a way of uh, representing the danger. Um, in, in other cases, it's uh, one can, with good reason, suspect that connection. Uh, but I, I think it's more difficult to, to, to find someone who clearly says that this is why uh, that monster was depicted there. Um, but, but thinking about the geography of, of sea monsters, um, one 
uh, one area on maps, medieval Renaissance maps, that, that sea monsters are more frequent is certainly the, the Indian Ocean. And I, I think that has to do with the fact that uh, that was the ocean furthest from Europe that had a name, I think we can say. And so there was a tendency, as we were discussing earlier, there's a tendency to, to place things that are strange and monstrous or fantastic at the edges of the world. And uh, the Indian Ocean <clears throat> was uh, the edge of the world, uh, not, not in the sense of falling off the edge, but furthest known. I think that's an important distinction to make um, area of the world and thus was often populated with sea monsters. Do you get a sense of to what degree there was real fear about these monsters? So like if you were a uh, an ancient or medieval or Renaissance mariner, it, on average, how afraid are you of sea monsters? It's a difficult question. There's a, there's a wonderful passage uh, from a Roman poet, uh, and it, it, it revolves around a, a ship journey out in the Atlantic, and there's a tremendous storm, and the mariners are very afraid. Uh, and they're they're afraid of sinking, but then they're also afraid of the monsters. They're explicitly afraid of the monsters. In other cases, uh, I, I guess we have to confront the fact that the, the voices of uh, the average sailor from the Middle Ages is is not typically a, a voice that has come down to us. That's been preserved in the documentary record. So we it's, it's often uh, not as easy as one might like to 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 understand their their feelings about sea monsters. Uh, well, I mean, I was just thinking about the accounts you document in your book where it seems like the, there may be an evolution over time in um, how much helplessness was manifested mm. in, in the depiction mm -hmm. of sea monsters or writing about them. Like, uh, is it correct that earlier on most depictions of sea monsters – were more kind of invulnerable. You were completely at their mercy, and over time, there there became more of a, uh, a representation of ways of fighting back. There, there, there certainly is some movement in that direction, uh, and there, there are two wonderful examples of of ways to to fight back against sea monsters. And one of them is on the Catalan Atlas of thirteen seventy five, called so called because it's in the the Catalan language, the language of Catalonia. Um, and in the Indian Ocean, there's a, a great image of, of two men who are uh, diving in, in underwater, and they seem to be collecting these multicolored rocks. And on either side of them, uh, there is a sea monster that seemed to be swimming away. And there's a text that explains that these are pearl divers, and the pearl divers have a magic spell, they say, before they get in the water that scares away the sea monsters. Uh, and that if it were not for this spell, the sea monsters would certainly devour them. Um, and so that's one great case where, where humans do seem to have some defense against sea monsters. And then the other one is, uh, again, returning to Olaus Magnus's uh, Cardamarina of 1539, there's an image of a ship with a sea monster behind it, a, a huge sea monster. And there's a, a, a man standing on the back of a ship, and at first glance, it looks like he's, he's pointing a gun at the sea monster. But um, it, the shape isn't quite right for a gun. And when one reads the, the text associated with the image, it turns out that this is a trumpet. Mm. And the, the text explains that <clears throat> when, uh, when a ship is in danger of being attacked by a sea monster, if one blows trump a trumpet and yells and makes a lot of noise, it's possible to scare the sea monster away. <laughs> uh, 
the same advice they give you for a bear or a cougar, right? <laughs> you are absolutely right. <laughs> and one wonders about the circumstances under which this was tried. Uh, another one that uh, caught my attention in the book were the was the folklore about uh, the nest of the abyss and the entrance to hell. Uh, I think this is related to the the Saint Brendan legend. Uh, yes, uh, this is on Andrea Bianco's uh, Mappamondi of fourteen thirty six. Um, yeah, it's. That that's another one where it's it's very difficult to to try and get at the source of this idea that there's um, that there's an entrance to the abyss at the South Pole, uh, which is what he's basically saying. Um, and the, there was there was a myth that at the North Pole there was a a great vortex. Well, first of all, there was a huge a mountain of magnetic stone, which was the explanation for why a compass points north. But then there was this huge vortex into which the waters of the Earth's oceans were continually being sucked. And I, I wish I knew where this idea of the abyss at the South Pole came from, whether it had any relation to this myth about this vortex at the North Pole. Um, I it's It's difficult to be sure. And there's there's a lot of difficulty being sure with uh, medieval and Renaissance maps. We don't have a journal that the cartographer left explaining why he or she put the things on the map that he or she did and what the sources were. Um, and sometimes it's possible to find the sources, but other times it's not. Um, is it possible, you think, to talk about the relationship between maps and sea monsters and the history of science? Do you see developing scientific ideas playing a role or, or being manifested in the way sea monsters show up on maps over time? Yes, uh, and it's, it's, it's a rich subject. Uh, so as I was saying, on early maps, uh, let's say before the middle of the 16th century, I think there often was uh, an attempt to convey scientific information with sea monsters, that is to show what was actually in living in the oceans. That they certainly also had a decorative function. There's no denying that. But, but because many of the monsters we see uh, portrayed come from things like encyclopedias, illustrated encyclopedias, uh, this this was what people at the time would have regarded as scientific information. Around the middle of the 16th century, one starts to see on maps sea monsters that were merely invented by the cartographer, as far as I or anyone else has been able to tell. That is, there is no earlier work that shows this same creature, and it's, they seem to be assembled from parts of different creatures. You know, it has the head of a bird and the trunk of an elephant and the tail of a fish, things like that. And when that starts to occur, uh, the, the scientific function of sea monsters, the, in, the information conveying function, the natural history information conveying function of sea monsters starts to go away. And sea monsters become more purely decorative. And that that change, uh, first of all, did not happen all at once. And second of all, did not happen for all cartographers. Uh, some continued after the middle of the 16th century to to show creatures uh, that came from what would have been called something like scientific sources of the time. Uh, but then 
uh, sea monsters on maps uh, began to decline. So they, they made a transition towards being more purely decorative. And then they began to decline as maps began to be thought of in a different way. Maps began to be thought of uh, as more purely scientific instruments in a more modern sense of the word. Um, that is something more purely utilitarian rather than an artistic creation. And so, uh, yes, in, in the course of particularly the 17th century, uh, sea monsters on maps declined, um, which for someone writing a book about sea monsters on maps is a little bit sad, mm. uh, but, uh, but is part of the historical process. And it, it relates exactly to, to what you're, you're talking about, this relation between sea monsters and science. Uh, that that sea monsters, I mean, be, people began to understand that these fantastical creatures were not real. But at the same time, uh, I think it wasn't the case that the the fantastic creatures began to be replaced with real fish. Um, that happens a little bit, but not as a general uh, pattern. And so somehow maps began to be conceived purely as uh, devices, instruments, scientific instruments for, for helping you get from point A to point B and less as artistic creations. It's, it interests me what you're saying, though, about um, it, it, there being a sort of counterintuitive or inverted process that as scientific knowledge advances and we get a clearer picture of what animals are real and what animals are not real, there's actually for a short period an increase in the mythologizing, right? So you're saying that that's when like these new uh, fanciful creatures are, are totally conjured up out of nowhere by the map makers? Yes. Yeah, that, that's interesting. It, it is interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting moment in, in the, the history of cartography and the history of sea creatures on on maps. It almost reminds me of uh, a thing we've talked about on other episodes of the show before about uh, uh, increase in uh, interest in like witchcraft and, and demonology actually is sort of going up as uh, as the Enlightenment was coming around uh, mm. before it before it faded away. That's a, a fascinating analogy. All right, time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of the interview. And we return. Well, before we before we surrender sea monsters to the onslaught of uh, realism, <laughs> uh, maybe we could go back and talk about a couple more of them. Uh, do, do you want to sure. talk a little bit about the idea of whales being mistaken for islands? <laughs> so there was a, a, a mythical story uh, that goes back to a work called the Physiologus. Um, a very early medieval work that, that contains this story. And the Physiologus is a, a collection of stories about animals and, and stones and plants, each of them uh, given a, a moral uh, interpretation. And so in the Physiologus, there's this story about sailors who find what they think is an island and they, they land on the island and light a fire on it. <clears throat> but it, it turns out that the island, what they thought was an island, is actually a whale. Uh, and when the whale feels this fire on its back, uh, it plunges into the ocean, uh, taking the sailors with it. And the, the moralization is that if uh, one places one's uh, trust in the devil, one will be carried to hell. So the, the, in this case, the whale is associated with the devil, which is another type of monstrosity, if you will. 
so this, uh, this story had a very long life. It was um, adapted from the Physiologus and incorporated into medieval bestiaries, medieval animal books, and, and had a, a wide, very wide diffusion. And this, uh, this story is illustrated uh, not only on bestiaries and in various other sources, but also on maps several times uh, and in different ways. And one of the uh, one particularly appealing illustration of it on a map is on uh, a map by P.D. Rice, who was a Turkish admiral. And on his map, he has a, a long text in which he says that he composed his map based on information from 20 other maps, uh, which is one of the few times we we get some insight into how maps were created in the early 16th century. And he illustrates this story. So there's a ship with a whale and uh, the two sailors on the back of the whale who've lit a fire. And uh, the, the text uh, nearby tells this story. And uh, he says, if I recall correctly, he says he copied it from a, a Portuguese map. So. This, uh, this story is not one we hear every day. It sounds familiar when we do hear it, I think. Uh, but it is something important in, in looking at images of whales on early maps. Uh, speaking of sea monsters so large they're mistaken for land masses, could you also talk a bit about the kraken? Yeah, the, the, the kraken doesn't uh, figure in my book. Uh, so it's it's – I, I really confined my attention to maps, and as far as I've been able to find, there's no early map that depicts the Kraken as such. Um, it's a shame. It's a shame. Um, and it may, that may be in part because uh, we, we don't have any uh, medieval Scandinavian maps. Well, it's not quite true. We don't, we don't have any – let me put it this way. We don't have any um, – medieval navigational charts from Scandinavia. And so one might be tempted to imagine that the, the Kraken might have been depicted on such a chart, but uh, such charts do not survive. Hmm. And now, uh, let's see, I do remember it coming up somehow in your book. You, I guess it was a reference to the, the, the King's Mirror. Was that used as a source for some other legend on a Scandinavian map? Uh, yes, the, the Kraken does appear in the, in the text, the King's Mirror. And the, I, I'm not recalling the details, so I, I, I think the, the name Kraken uh, uh, does appear on a map, but it's the, the creature the creature depicted is not what we think of as the Kraken. Uh, mm. So uh, it's it's not the same. Uh, when we think about the Kraken, I think we have a, a quite specific, terrifying image, and, and that's not what's on this map. Well, one last question, Chad, if you don't mind. Uh, do you sure. want to talk any about uh, what you've been working on more recently? I know – I believe this uh, book we've been talking about was from 2013. You've recently been working on uh, uh, something about uh, imaging for damaged maps. Yes. Uh, so I, I work with a group at uh, the University of Rochester and the Rochester Institute of Technology called the Lazarus Project and Archive. Uh, so two different groups. And we use a, a technology called multispectral imaging uh, to recover information from damaged uh, manuscripts, books, and maps. And one of our projects uh, was to use this technology on an important world map 
made in about 1491 by a German cartographer who was working in Florence named Enriquez Martellus. And it's a, it's a large world map um, at Yale University. And it, it appeared in the late 1950s and was uh, sold and then anonymously donated to Yale. And its importance was recognized but at the same time, it was uh, sort of this great unstudiable object because most of the text on it had faded to illegibility. Mm. Um, and so I, I was interested in studying the map and uh, did some research as to what technologies might be able to help with that and got in touch with uh, Gregory Hayworth, who's now at the University of Rochester. And uh, we, uh, we worked together uh, uh, to image this map in 2015, and we were able to uh, recover uh, a great, a large proportion, uh, not all, but almost all of the text on the map and, and many of the images as well, and thus uh, turn what had been this unstudiable object into something that's studyable in all its aspects. And uh, late last year, I published a book based on this research. And when we, we generated these images of the map, uh, I came to the map with my questions. But one of the exciting things about the project is that all of the images will be made freely available online. And anyone can now approach this map with his or her own questions and uh, write his or her own book or article about other aspects of the map that I never thought about. So with, with the right um, object. And in this, this case, this map was a great candidate for multispectral imaging. It's like magic. Uh, text suddenly appears where it was totally invisible to the naked eye before. Wow. I love that. That's, uh, I mean, of course, there's always the appeal of the idea of a lost document, even more maddening, I'm sure, is the idea of an, uh, an old document or, or text that you have, but you can't read. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh. So it was, it was very tantalizing, but uh, at least in this case and in, in various others, uh, there, there's now a solution. There's now the, the, the possibility to, to make these documents legible and accessible again, which is very exciting. Yeah, that's fantastic. All right. Well, I think we have to call it there, but Chet, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Joe. I've really enjoyed this very much. All right, that wraps up today's episode, but a big thanks again to Chet Van Duzer for joining us. Uh, and if you want to see more of his talks, more of his work, we'll post some links on the landing page to this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, of course, stufftoblowyourmind.com is the mothership. You can check out all of our podcasts there. Let's go see the other episodes from October. We've been talking about monsters all month. If you are not subscribed to Invention yet, that's our other podcast. It's about, guess what, inventions. But we bring the stuff to blow your mind spin to it. Uh, we try to explore the things we made and how they made us, the influences of inventions on human culture and history, and the circumstances that led to, uh, to inventions such as escape coffins, escape hatch coffins we've been talking about all month, as well as coffins to prevent grave robbery and the theft of bodies by the resurrection men who worked for the anatomists of the 17th and 18th centuries. That's been a lot of fun. So if you haven't checked out Invention yet, now is a great time. Jump over there and see what it's all about. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. 
If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.